0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
1: And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we've got a very special episode for y'all out there. We are doing a partnership with National Geographic. Yeah. So they've got a new show coming out called One Strange Rock and it is produced by Darren Aronofsky of mini movie fame. Mm -hmm. And, uh, all about, it's all about the science of planet earth and the sort of intricate interconnected processes, both geological and biological that keep the earth stable as a sanctuary for life as we know it. And in that sense, it has a kind of, uh, ecological Alexander von Humboldt kind of vibe that I really like. I, I like it when you can see the large-scale and small-scale interconnectedness of all things to, to make the world how it is. Yes, and speaking of sea, this is a visual spectacle. Yeah, it's got a lot of really beautiful photography and it's hosted by Will Smith. I don't know if he ever says welcome to Earth in it, but <laughs> I kind of hope so. Uh, and it, it tells stories through the experiences of a large cast of real-life astronauts who are the only human humans ever to venture beyond the shield that protects us from the universe at large. And so because of our partnership with National Geographic for this episode, we got an opportunity to talk to one of the astronauts on the show, Dr. Jeff Hoffman, who flew 5 space shuttle missions including a Hubble Space Telescope repair mission.
0: And this was a great interview. We're just delighted to share it with everybody.
1: Yeah, Dr. Hoffman is very knowledgeable from multiple vantage points about the thing that we're going to be focusing on today which is the radiation risk from space and how Earth protects us. And he's knowledgeable in a couple of different domains because he's done high-energy astrophysics and knows all about the radiation environment of our solar system and the universe at large. But he also has a direct experience of what it's like to be an astronaut out in space to sort of go beyond our protective barriers. And that kind of perspective is kind of hard to come by because I would say one thing – it's really easy to lose sight of in your day-to-day life when you're reading about politics or playing with your dog or making some dinner is that your body is made of molecules. And in order for molecules in your body to do what they do, they have to remain what they are. And most of the time, the internal chemistry of our bodies is pretty stable, right? But we have to recognize that the chemical stability of our bodies is an enormous and unique privilege provided to us by virtue of the fact that we live on planet
0: Earth. Yeah, and this we get into um, a, a truth that we touch on uh, quite a bit on the show, and that is that Earth is just the right planet Yeah, for life as we know it.
1: Kind of unsurprising, of mm-hmm. course, being creatures that evolved on planet Earth, that planet Earth is just the right planet for us. But despite realizing the kind of anthropic obviousness of that fact, it is still a, a kind of strange and comforting feeling, Well, wait a minute. Is it comforting or is it discomforting? The fact that most of the universe is going to be so hostile to us, so unbelievably hostile, so incredibly violent that it's just impossible to even consider. And I'm not even talking about the vaporizing heat of stars or the cold, airless void of deep space. I'm talking about the fact that the universe is an acid bath of killer radiation including ionizing radiation, which often takes the form of these high-energy charged particles that blast through animal bodies, damaging and changing the molecules within them as they go along, and even changing the DNA of our cells, altering the blueprints for cell replication, and bringing about tissue damage, sterility, and cancer. And so that body integrity and chemical stability we so take for granted to keep living is only possible because of the planet we inhabit, which shields us from being blasted by the sun nearby and by the galaxy at large
0: yeah it's it's interesting to think about this that we we are creatures of the shallows yeah so life as we know it essentially thrives in a tide pool Protected from the full onslaught of wind and wave, mm-hmm. you know, if you've ever been to a uh, to a number of beach uh, environments, you've seen those areas, right, where um, where, where the, the waves are crashing, but there, but but there's this pool, this uh, this area of calm water that is protected from all of that, yeah. and that's where a, a lot of life can thrive that otherwise would not be be able to bear the hostilities beyond the rocks, exactly. And it actually uh, reminds me of this uh, quote by John Steinbeck. Uh and and uh, he's not directly talking about what we're talking about here, uh but the the comparison is is just beautiful. He uh, he wrote, "The knowledge that all things are one thing and that one thing is all things, plankton, a shimmering phosphorescence on the sea and the spinning planets and an expanding universe, all bound together by the elastic string of time." It is advisable to look from the tide pool to the stars and then back to the tide pool again. <laughs> yeah, our Earth is protected, not from wind and waves, but from the full blast of solar and cosmic radiation. Instead of rocky seawalls, we're protected by a robust atmosphere and most importantly, the magnetosphere.
1: Yeah, the interesting other side to the fact – we've got this kind of connected consciousness that we're aware of. Like there is no real division between the earth and the heavens. They're just different places. The only real mm-hmm. division is distance. And so all the universe really is connected and does have a common origin in the Big Bang. But at the same time, that connectedness <laughs> – we use the word connected in such a a happy way. It's like nice to be connected to things. Mm -hmm. But you could also think about that as extreme vulnerability. Like you are right next door to everything in the universe that would crush and annihilate you. And what we've got standing in the way of those those crushing, annihilating forces beyond our power to control is essentially a big magnetic field and a thin layer of gas around the rocky surface of the planet.
0: That's right. So – Basically, what we have going on here is Earth's solid inner core and liquid outer core, they play a crucial role in protecting life as we know it from deadly, uh, deadly radiation. Uh, differences in temperature and composition in the two core regions drive a powerful uh, dynamo, emitting Earth's protect- protective electromagnetic field. Yeah, And remember, this is uh, one of the, the, the key factors we have to consider in proposed interplanetary space travel and establishing stations on other worlds. The only planets in our solar system with some form of magnetosphere in place are Mercury, Earth, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune.
1: Right. So, Then, of course, you've also on the surface of the Earth got the atmosphere to count on because Mm -hmm. that means that there's more stuff that radiation has to get through to get to you. And so the atmosphere will block some kinds of incoming radiation. But the other big protector is the magnetosphere that keeps these particles directed away from the Earth. Some,
0: of course, still get through. Right. And also the magnetosphere serves to protect the atmosphere as well.
1: Yes, Because if you don't have a magnetosphere, your atmosphere over time can be stripped away, which is one of the things that they think probably happened to Mars long ago.
0: Right. So it's our protective barrier against the elements. It's our battlements. And the only humans who have walked these battlements are astronauts such as Dr. Jeff Hoffman.
1: Now, most astronauts never even go beyond the the shield that protects us, right? We know that astronauts in space are exposed to extra levels of radiation, and that's one reason you want to limit your time in space. You're like you can't go live in the ISS forever. Mm-hmm. They want to bring you back eventually because the more time you spend up there, the more you're exposed to this dangerous radiation that could harm you in the long run. But even up in the ISS, you're still uh, you're still benefiting from a large part of the Earth's protective shield, right? Yes. It gets a lot worse if you want to go to the moon or go to Mars or colonize another planet.
0: Yeah, because then you are going beyond Earth's protection.
1: So I guess we want to go now to our conversation with Dr. Jeff Hoffman uh, to talk about the radiation risks posed by the universe and what astronauts have done and can do to protect themselves. But first, I guess we should give you just a little bit of background on Dr. Hoffman.
0: Yeah, uh, so his original research interests were in high-energy astrophysics, specifically cosmic, gamma radiation, and X-ray astronomy. And then his doctoral work at Harvard entailed balloon-borne low-energy gamma-ray telescopes and so mm-hmm. the design and, and the testing of this technology. From 1972 to 1975, during postdoctoral work at Leicester University, he worked on several X-ray astronomy rocket payloads. Mm-hmm. And then he worked in the Center for Space Research at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology from 1975 to 1978 as project scientist in charge of the orbiting HEAO-1A4 hard X-ray and gamma-ray experiment, which launched... Launched in August 1977, but then in 78 he was selected to become an astronaut, and uh, he went on uh, a total of five different shuttle flights. So in 85 he went up on on Discovery, 1990 on Columbia, 92 on Atlantis, 93 on Endeavour, and then in 1996 on Columbia. All told, 1,211 hours in space, 21.5 million miles. That's a lot of miles. Yeah frequent flyer yeah so he he is a uh, not only a pedigreed scientist but a pedigreed astronaut five shuttle flights that's impressive that's five more than the vast majority uh, of human beings
1: all right we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we will be heading straight into our interview with dr jeff hoffman hey dr hoffman welcome to the show we're really glad to have you
2: here. Looking forward to it.
1: I was wondering if you could start off by telling us a little bit about your research from before you became an astronaut. What what made you interested in high-energy astrophysics, and um, what were your pursuits in that field?
2: Well, I grew up uh, with an interest in space. I I lived in or near New York City. My dad used to take me to the planetarium to see the new show every month. Um, I saw the birth of the space age. Uh, you know, I was alive when Sputnik was first launched, when Yuri Gagarin and John Glenn flew. And and uh, uh, so I was also interested in, in human spaceflight, although it was apparent to me that all the early astronauts were military test pilots, and that was not a career for me. But, Uh, Space in general, I was fascinated with and went on to become an astronomer. I got a a doctorate in in astrophysics at at Harvard, Um, and I was attracted by uh, what we call high-energy astrophysics. It was uh, a totally new field at the time, Um, the discovery of X-rays from celestial objects and gamma rays, Uh, It was a new branch of astronomy opening up just like radio astronomy opened up back uh, in the 1930s, and um, that struck me as being uh, an an area where we were almost bound to make new discoveries because we had never looked at at this type of radiation before, so my... uh, Professional career as an astronomer consisted in designing uh, X-ray telescopes and then putting them into space. First, with I was using high-altitude balloons when I did my PhD thesis, and then um, I spent three and a half years at Leicester University in England. Uh, and we had both uh, sounding rocket experiments where we would put our telescopes up above the atmosphere. You have to go above the atmosphere because X-rays and gamma rays are absorbed in the atmosphere, which is a good thing for us here on the ground, but it makes life difficult for astronomers because you have to go above the atmosphere to to see this radiation, and and that was kind of cool as well because I was always interested in space and rockets, and, and so... Uh, I was combining the the technological interest with what I thought was a very exciting scientific field. And then I came back to MIT, and we we had actually our own X-ray satellite. And the most exciting research that I was doing, we discovered these things called X-ray bursts. You look at an X-ray object giving out relatively low level of radiation fairly constantly, and then all of a sudden, you know, bam, it increases by hundreds and hundreds of times and then gradually fades away over the course of anywhere from a few seconds to a few minutes and we we discovered lots of these and uh, this was a completely new phenomena and that was probably the most e- exciting thing that i did scientifically was uh finally figure out what was what was causing these it was actually uh neutron stars um orbiting around regular stars, and um, the gravitation of the neutron star was such that it would suck hydrogen off the regular star, and the hydrogen would accumulate in a layer on the surface of the neutron star, and then eventually the whole thing would uh, detonate in a a huge thermonuclear explosion. So what we were looking at were hydrogen bombs, you know, 10 miles in diameter, Uh, you know, Pretty spectacular stuff. So that was really exciting, and I was all set for a, uh, you know, career as a, an astronomer. And uh, But it, that was now in the mid to late 70s when NASA was getting ready to fly what was then the brand-new space shuttle. And uh, the neat thing about the space shuttle, from my point of view, was that it had a crew of seven, but they only needed two pilots the pilots were still going to be military test pilots but it really opened things up for engineers, scientists and medical doctors and when nasa put out a call for um, for astronauts for the space shuttle and and indicated that yes they really did want scientists and engineers and and doctors um, I thought, well, I'll apply, and I was lucky enough to get selected the first time around. So, that basically was the end of my career in astronomy research. Um, I had a, uh, you know, I'd say it was quite successful, and and had I not been selected, I hope I would have had a good career as a research astrophysicist, but... Uh, Getting selected by NASA as an astronaut certainly changed my life.
1: Interesting. Uh, Before we ask you about a little bit of your spaceflight experience, I just wonder, does research into high-energy astrophysics, like if you're looking at neutron stars and bursts of X-rays and gamma rays and stuff in the universe, does that change the way – you feel about the sky when you look up at it I and mean, most people look up and see twinkling s- stars and uh, it, it feels kind of nice and cool and calm. D- do you, do you envision the universe emotionally as one full of radiation and danger and high energy?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, when you look up just a simple look up at the stars, everything looks pretty constant and unvarying, and when you uh, realize that there's things exploding and going off all over the place, the tremendous areas of high gravitation, high magnetic fields, charged particles, uh, yeah, the universe is a pretty violent place, Um, and uh, you don't see it with your naked eye, but uh, modern astronomy has, has opened this up to us.
0: Uh, Dr. Hoffman, can you t- tell us uh, about some of your your space flight experience? Uh, what was the the Hubble Service Mission like?
2: Well, let me let me start a little bit further back with my first space flight because um, that, of course, for any astronaut, is is an exciting moment when you get the call from management and they say, "Oh, you've been you you got an assignment to your first space flight." Um, we were supposed to take up. Two satellites and put them into orbit, in other words, pop them out of the cargo bay of the shuttle, which was what the shuttle was doing in the early days, uh, and then come home. It was going to be a short, relatively short mission, four days or so um, and as it turned out, the second of the two satellites that we popped out of the shuttle didn't turn on uh, you know it had nothing to do with us all, all we were supposed to do was was get it out of the shuttle into orbit but uh when When we reported that it did not seem to have activated NASA went into a you know big study mode and they figured out the there was only one single point failure that we could possibly do something about There was a little switch on the outside of the satellite that maybe had gotten stuck. And so they scheduled for the first time in NASA history an unplanned spacewalk where my partner and I went out. Uh, see, I had been trained to use spacesuits, but we weren't planning to do a spacewalk on my first flight. Uh, but they sent us out to fix it. And um, so that was a uh, totally unexpected, uh, incredible experience, you know, getting to go out and, and do a spacewalk, which. Uh, you know, all astronauts would like to, to go out. It's the most intimate experience that you can have of being in space is actually putting on a space suit and going out of the uh, airlock and, and it's, you know, kind of you face to face with the rest of the universe. It's it's an incredible experience and and we did a good job and, and so um, I got identified as as somebody who was good at spacewalking, and I worked on a lot of advanced spacesuit development and various things. And then when it came time to select a crew to go up and uh, try to repair the Hubble telescope, and of course, nowadays, people who weren't alive at the time when Hubble was put in orbit don't don't really appreciate what a disaster it was for NASA. I mean, this billion-and-a-half-dollar telescope, which had been launched with great expectations about how it was going to revolutionize our view of the universe, and then to find out that it couldn't focus properly, I mean, how could NASA make a huge mistake like that was what everybody was was asking, and and it was absolutely critical. I mean... As I say, people don't remember what a disaster it was, but NASA and Hubble were the joke of late-night comedians. Uh, Hubble was denounced in the halls of the U.S. Congress as a techno-Turkey. NASA was trying to get Congress to approve funding for the International Space Station at the time, and as you can imagine, NASA wasn't very popular with Congress, so... Um, Basically, they were told, you know, go do something about Hubble and then come back and talk to us about the space station. In any case, NASA wanted to do everything possible to reduce the risk of failure in this rescue mission. And one of the things that they decided was that only people who had previously done spacewalks would be eligible to do the spacewalks for the Hubble rescue. And um, because of this unplanned spacewalk that I did way back on my first flight... Um, and I had had two subsequent flights since then, so Hubble for me was my fourth flight, and I had my Spacewalkers Union card, so I, <laughs> I was fortunate enough to be on the crew. And that was, certainly of all the things I did as an astronaut, the one with the most lasting impact was obviously rescuing Hubble and turning it from basically NASA's worst disaster um, scientifically to its most successful and productive scientific mission ever. So it was a, and and of course, as a former astronomer, as well as being an astronaut, being able to put my two hands on the Hubble telescope up in orbit was, I mean, it was the thrill of a lifetime. And we fixed it.
1: And a great thing you did.
2: Well, I, I, I know that many of my uh, ast- former astronomy colleagues, uh, after the mission, they would come, I can't tell you how many people would come up to me and say, "Oh, Jeff, thank you so much for taking <laughs> humble because, you know, my my professional career was depending on this and all I could say was, well, it was a pleasure, you know. Thank <laughs> you. It was a pleasure. <laughs> it really was.
1: So you mentioned that when you were out on spacewalks in in EVA that you had this kind of intimate experience with the universe. It was like putting you face to face with the, the outer universe and I wonder about something. So there was a sci-fi novel I read a couple of years ago where a character is born and lives her whole life in simulated environments inside a generation starship. And she finally at one point comes back to Earth late in life and she's outside and discussing the idea of getting sunburned. And she's so unfamiliar with the concept of Earth and the sun that she calls this – she's horrified and she calls this getting burned by radiation from a star – I wonder, is there a moment in uh, space, uh, you know, outside vehicle activity where you begin to think of the sun not as the sun, but as a star and other kinds of a- alienation effects?
2: No, absolutely. I mean, this is something I when I give public talks, I, I often show a picture of the sun in space. And then I ask the audience, there's something very strange about this picture. Can you figure out what it is? And most people don't quite get it, but what you're seeing is the sun in a black sky. And think about it. You've never seen the sun in a black sky because every time the weather is clear, you go out and, of course, our atmosphere scatters the blue light preferentially, and so the sky is blue. And so every human being throughout human history until the space age has only seen the sun in a blue sky. We see the stars in a black sky because there's not enough light, really, from the stars to be scattered and and make the sky look blue. But not the sun. But in space, you really see the sun as a star in a black sky. Of course, it's it's bigger and brighter than any of the other stars because it's close to us. But, yeah, you really do appreciate the sun as a star. And that, that that was something I didn't have to go out and just looking out the window of the shuttle, You you get that appreciation. But it's a totally different perspective, as are so many other things that you see. I mean, that's one of the things about being off the surface of the earth is that you look with a totally new perspective. Uh just like most people don't remember the first time they ever flew in an airplane, but if you if you pay attention and look out the window, you also get a totally new perspective on the on the earth, although most people don't bother to look out the window these days. But from <laughs> space, we spent a lot of time looking out the windows and uh I never got tired of it. It was a uh, completely um, different perspective, not only on the Earth but on on the heavens. It was great flying during the nighttime. You know, we'd start, we'd enter darkness in the northern hemisphere, and you could look up and see all the familiar northern constellations, the Cygnus, the Swan, which is the Northern Cross, and then 15 minutes later, you'd be in the southern hemisphere and see Alpha Centauri and the Southern Cross, and that's something else that you never do when you're on the surface of the Earth, is to see the northern and the southern skies at the uh, you know within a half hour of one another.
0: Would you describe this as uh, as being akin to the the overview effect?
2: Well, the overview effect um, maybe some of the the listeners don't aren't familiar with that, but it, it was uh, coined uh, by Frank White. He's an author who thought a lot about. Uh, I, I guess he had this kind of uh, Inspiration during an air, airplane flight when he was looking at the ground and and feeling a little bit removed from the earth, but uh, he then he started thinking about you know what what must it be like for the astronauts? So he came down to Houston, and uh, I was one of the first astronauts that he interviewed. And you know the idea is it it really does change your perception of planet Earth to to look at it uh, and and actually see the Earth as a planet. Um, to see, you know, from an airplane, you can look out the window and see entire cities spread out below you. But from an orbiting spacecraft, you you can see uh, entire countries or continents, really. The Earth is very beautiful. And so you you do get this relationship that develops between you and the planet at the same time you can see examples of environmental degradation caused by humanity which is uh, you know now visible from a cosmic perspective and that's pretty scary you know the deforestation of the amazon the uh, silting up of of uh, harbors and and rivers and and uh... just all sorts of things and, and you realize that um, you you definitely get a feeling of the the finiteness of planet Earth and and this sense of what it is to be removed from the Earth and how that changes your uh, feelings for planet Earth is is what Frank called the overview effect and many astronauts have have reported this. There's now actually a, a movie that that you can find on on YouTube or Vimeo that uh, the, the about the overview effect made by a, a, a cinematographer in, in the UK, uh, interviews with a lot of different astronauts, myself included. So, yeah, it's um, it, it's a totally different perspective you get when you're hundreds of miles above the surface of the Earth.
1: So uh, going back to the idea of, of radiation risk beyond the surface of the Earth, on the missions you flew in the 80s and 90s, What did you and the other crew members understand about radiation risk in space? And uh, what what kind of measures were in place to protect you other than just limiting the duration of missions?
2: The shuttle flies like the International Space Station in what we call low Earth orbit. So we are basically below the Van Allen radiation belts. We're inside the Earth's magnetic fields, which shields us from most uh, cosmic radiation. So um, it's it's a much more benign environment than when you actually left the Earth to head out to the Moon and you're outside the Earth's magnetic shield, and then you're exposed to the direct um Impact of galactic cosmic rays and um, and charged particles coming from the sun. Um, you ultraviolet light, of course, uh, is not deflected by the magnetic field, and we have to have protection against ultraviolet light. Otherwise, it would destroy our our eyes, which is why the space helmet, spacesuit helmets, have those those gold visors which protect you. And there's ultraviolet protection on all of the windows of the space shuttle and the uh, International Space Station windows. So, um, you know, electromagnetic radiation, cosmic, uh, the the uh, ultraviolet rays, we have to protect ourselves against. And then, of course, there's the infrared radiation from the sun, the heat. Uh, when you're in the... Um, direct sunlight uh, temperatures of things exposed to direct sunlight in space can go up above the boiling point of water and so when you're out in your space suit you need good uh, cooling and we do that by sublimating ice and that cools off the water which we then circulate in in uh, a liquid cooling garment with lots of tubes where where you can run the cold water right over your body and and take away heat Uh, And you can adjust that, because when you go into the dark side, uh, it gets very, very cold, and and there uh, you don't want this extra cooling. So, um, from the electromagnetic point of view, we've got to protect ourselves against ultraviolet radiation, and we've got to have good thermal control for heat. For the... uh, charged particle radiation, as I say, we're in a relatively benign uh, place. When we did our Hubble mission, uh, Hubble was put as high up as the shuttle could go, about 400 miles, 600 kilometers. Uh, and we were kind of scraping the bottom of the um, Van Allen, inner Van Allen radiation belt. So uh it was calculated that we were going to get about 10 times the normal exposure for a shuttle flight which which still was nothing to to be concerned about from a uh, you know cancer point of view but uh, but they had us wear radiation monitors uh, the whole time, and, and particularly when we went outside. And they tried to schedule the spacewalks so that we would not be outside when we went through what, what is known as the South Atlantic anomaly, which was a, a part of the orbit where the radiation is, is much higher than, than the rest of it. That's about all you can do. Obviously, if there were ever a huge solar... Uh, eruption, uh, we always have the option of coming home and, and, uh, you know, getting underneath the atmosphere for the extra protection, but we never had to do that.
0: What about uh, extended future missions? How do the risks change and what sort of solutions are being developed to protect future astronauts?
2: Well, the radiation risk is recognized as being one of the most serious if you're going to be outside the Earth's magnetic field for a long time. Uh, either on the surface of the Moon or on an extended trip to Mars. On the surface of the Moon, actually getting to the Moon is is not such a big deal because you can get there in three days, and so your exposure time is limited. But if you're going to spend any significant amount of time on the surface of the Moon, um, obviously the, the the Moon blocks about half of the galactic cosmic rays, but uh, but you're still exposed to all the rest of them. And it may be that, um, you know, they're they're talking about possibly having underground habitats in lava tubes, which we know exist on the moon. You're going to have to do something to shield yourself from the radiation, because being exposed to it for a long time is going to be dangerous. That's something that's very difficult to do if you're on a trip to Mars, because you can't carry that much mass with you to uh, protect yourself. And um, so NASA is interested in other ways. There are some, uh, I think, very interesting research going on about um, pharmacological protection uh, against uh, radiation. If there were some way that we could enhance the body's ability to repair DNA, um, that would make the impact of radiation much less serious. We know that there's bacterias which can uh, withstand hundreds of times the amount of radiation that a human can. They've developed the ability to repair much more significant damage to DNA than we're able to do. Um, There may be genetic uh, clues about how to protect against radiation. So the point being that we've got to look for other ways besides just shielding. And, of course, developing a better, more powerful propulsion systems so that we could get to Mars quicker would be a, a big help as well, not just from a radiation point of view, but logistically. You know, you've know, you got to carry everything you need. Uh, you can't get resupplied once you're on your way to Mars. So, all the food, the medical equipment, the, uh, spare parts, everything, the quicker you can get there, the better. So, there's a lot of, uh, ways that, that we're looking at that will make long duration space flight outside the Earth's magnetic field safer, but, uh, most of these things are still works in progress. Right now, we, we don't have those solutions available.
1: Now, and, and uh correct me if I'm wrong, but once you get to Mars on a Mars mission, uh on the surface you're not a whole lot better off than you are in space, right? It, as as far as oh, radiation yeah, you risk are, goes. Because
2: first of all, Mars just like when you're on the surface of the moon, Mars is blocking half of the radiation just by its mass and then Mars does have a bit of an atmosphere which gives you a little bit of protection but you're right there's still the radiation environment on the surface of, Mar, of Mars is uh, more severe than being in low Earth orbit and so radiation protection on the surface of Mars will continue to be an issue just like it will be on the Moon uh, you'll have to have a certain amount of protection in your habitats but, again, the other the other thing, um, you know, there's two aspects of the dangers of radiation. One of them is that in the long term it will lead to an increased incident of cancers like leukemia. Well, uh, one of the things that we're realizing is that our ability for early detection and treatment in cancer is continually improving. And so maybe, you know, 20, 30 years from now, that's just not going to be as much of a problem. The other uh potential problem from radiation are acute impacts. There there have been some experiments that have shown a potential loss of cognitive capability for rats when they're exposed to radiation. Um, you certainly would not like to get to Mars and find out that your IQ has decreased by 20 points. Um there are potential uh, effects of acute effects of radiation on the circulatory system on the nervous system and that's an area of uh, very active research now it's relatively new uh, traditionally we were just concerned with the long term impact of radiation that is ultimately causing cancer unless of course you had a huge solar flare uh, you know if you get enough radiation all at one time, you're going to die or have serious, uh, illnesses and, and that, uh, you know, we, we would like not to be in space when they have a huge solar flare, but you know, statistically those don't happen very often and so far we've been lucky.
1: So we've discussed the the ambient radiation risks in space. Obviously, within our solar system, you, you've got solar radiation to worry about and you've got charged particles from the, from the galaxy, the universe to worry about. But also, um, apart from these ambient radiation risks, does it make sense to also uh, – for spacefarers to worry about anomalous radiation risks? Um, I know, for example, like X-ray bursts and gamma-ray bursts are extremely rare in the universe. Are they so rare that – uh, that we just don't have to think about that or, or will the future of space exploration need can't to take? We don't really
2: think about it. I mean, if, if, uh, if there were a, a huge black hole merger like, uh, was observed with the gravitational radiation, you know, billions of light years away, if something like that happened right near us in the galaxy, it, it would be bad news, but there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. And so it's just not something that uh, that we even bother to think about.
1: And what about solar anomalies? I know you mentioned like uh, a solar event. Well, uh,
2: solar uh, I mean solar flares are recognized. I mean, there was a big solar flare in 1972 in August which just happened to occur between Apollo 16 and Apollo 17. Had it occurred when astronauts were on the lunar surface, there's been a lot of discussion of whether it would have been fatal or whether it would have just been very bad for them but it it would have been a very serious effect but that solar flare in 1972 was not nearly the strongest solar flare that's ever existed i mean there was the carrington event back in the mid 19th century which was so powerful of course that was we didn't have satellites we didn't have electronics going but they did have telegraph lines And that solar flare collapsed the Earth's magnetic field to the extent that the moving magnetic field induced voltages in the telegraph lines, which caused fires in telegraph offices. I mean, if if a flare like that hit us today, it would cost... Lloyds of London did an estimate of, of that. I mean, it would be like a trillion dollars worth of damage. All of our satellites would be destroyed. Electronic systems all over the world. Electrical power grids would go down. And there's nothing we can do about it, except that statistically something like that happens maybe once every 500 years or so. Um, so far, we've been lucky. And not too much more you can say about it. Uh we are people are still doing research to try to be able to predict solar flares so far without many uh positive results. But uh I just read recently some new research is indicating that, you know, maybe they've made a breakthrough Um, Being able to predict solar flares in advance would be a a big help so that at least you could get ready for it. And if you had astronauts on the moon, at least they could try to get inside their shielding. But other than that, um, it's statistics, and so far we've been lucky.
0: All right, Dr. Huffman, in other interviews, you have uh, stated that shrimp cocktail was your favorite food in space. Can you explain for our (laughs) listeners why you selected that?
2: You know, when, when, uh, when you take away gravity, there's a, an upward migration of fluid from your lower body to your upper body. And so you get a lot of extra fluid in your head. It's a little bit like having sinus congestion and it, it decreases your sense of smell so that, um, you, you, the food becomes very bland. Uh, They provide extra Tabasco sauce that we can sort of spice up our food. The nice thing about the shrimp cocktail is dehydrated. So the shrimp themselves, uh, you know, nothing to write home about. You you put a little bit of water on them. They don't have that much taste. But they pack it in a really, really hot horseradish sauce. So (laughs) I found if I would eat a shrimp cocktail before dinner every night, that horseradish would kind of open up my nasal passages so that I could smell and taste the rest of the food a little bit more. So that's why it was my favorite food, not because it intrinsically tastes good. I mean, as a shrimp cocktail, it was, uh, you know, if they served it to you in a restaurant, you'd send it back. But uh, it really opened up the nasal passages so that I can enjoy the rest of my meal.
1: Well, uh, I guess it's those little pleasures that make life worth living. <laughs>
2: <laughs> there you go.
1: Well, uh, thank you so much. It's been such a privilege to talk to you, Dr. Hoffman. We Indeed. really uh, appreciate I'm you sharing just, your time uh, with it's us. It's been a
2: pleasure, and I, I hope it's given uh, maybe a new perspective to some of the listeners who haven't heard some of this stuff. So uh, uh, thanks for your interest, and um, it's uh, it's been fun. Yeah,
0: thank All you right. so much. Thank you. You have a great day, sir. All right. Well, thanks once more to Dr. Jeff Hoffman and to National Geographic uh, for uh, uh, enabling us to have this wonderful chat. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Joe and I will discuss the interview a little bit uh, before we close out the episode. All right. We're back. So, Robert, Dr.
1: Hoffman mentioned a few things in that interview that uh, I I thought were really interesting and we might want to follow up and talk about a little bit. One of the things he mentioned when we were talking about solar anomalies was the idea of the Carrington event or the solar storm of 1859. And this just stuck in my mind because this is one of the most fascinating and I think – Uh, maybe lesser-known crazy astronomical events in history?
0: Yeah, and indeed, it may have been the largest solar energetic particle event in the past several hundred years. So why do we call it the Carrington event? Well, it's named for amateur astronomer Richard Carrington, who observed, quote, two patches of intensely bright and white light erupting from a cluster of dark sunspots. They vanished within five minutes, but then within a matter of hours, the effects of this event were felt on Earth. So what did those effects look like? Well, as uh, Dr. Hoffman uh, uh, alluded to, uh, telegraph communication around the world began to fail. Sparks were flying uh, from telegraph machines. Telegraph operators were, in some cases, shocked. Uh, and then also colorful auroras in the sky uh, were causing the birds to chirp at night. Wow. Yeah. So the solar flare in question is, had the power of an estimated 10 billion atomic bombs, and ice core samples reveal that the Carrington event was twice as big as any other solar storm within the last 500 years. This is the kind of thing where if it were to hit today... The estimates are just in trillions of dollars worth of damage. It would just be a massive blow. And uh, Dr. Hoffman alluded to this as well. The idea that it would have it would impact our satellites. It would impact technology uh, on a scale that just simply did not exist in 1859.
1: But of course, it would also greatly affect any exposed astronauts or spacefarers that you know were, were colonists or wherever outside of the protection of you know, our shield that didn't even fully protect us from this event.
0: Yeah. 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 You know, I, I actually interviewed a heliophysicist, Dr. C. Alex Young, several years ago uh, about solar storms, and he pointed out that that our modern electrical grid in particular is just highly vulnerable to this sort of thing. He told me, quote, the power grids that we have in the US and actually all over the world are interconnected and very fragile. If the current's l- large enough, it can short out the largest of the transformers which can knock out the power grid over the scale of a country, of a continent, or even across the whole globe. That's scary. Yeah. And uh, for just a minor uh, example of this sort of thing, Canada's Hydro-Quebec power grid experienced a similar shock in 1989 from a particularly powerful sunstorm. And this caused the grid to go down for over nine hours, resulting in revenue losses estimated in the, the hundreds of millions of dollars. And that was just the small potatoes compared to something like the Carrington event.
1: Yeah, with our earthbound minds, it's impossible for us to grasp the real power and magnitude of solar events. Like, if you've never seen one of those pictures of the earth superimposed to scale against a solar prominence, it's, it's amazing. Solar prominences are these events where this monstrous loop of plasma erupts out of the photosphere, which is the apparent surface of the sun, and then it curves through the sun's corona guided by solar magnetic fields. And this is not even really the core of the sun itself. It's just an event. It's like weather. It's a, it's an event on the surface of the sun, but this event itself is tens of times bigger than the entire planet Earth. And you see one of these pictures, when you look at it, the vulnerability and tininess of human-scale projects becomes absurdly apparent.
0: The comparison that comes to my mind is if you ever been out in nature, uh, as as I know you, you like to venture out into nature on, on hikes and, yeah. and so forth. You ever observe a, a bird's nest or a wasp nest, some sort of animal structure or nest, and you think to yourself, well, that's a horrible place to put that. Don't you know tiny bird, that uh, eventually the wind is going to blow? Uh, don't you know that when it rains, that's, that's just not a very protected place? Don't you know that that's my front porch and I'm probably going to knock you down eventually just because you're inconvenient to me? Mm-hmm. And then, when you think about everything that he, that that is life on Earth, and then everything that humans have built, and you think of the vulnerability uh, that is intrinsic in all of that, uh, we're really no different from uh, from any uh, uh, wasp that decides to build its nest on the bottom of a porch swing.
1: On a geologic or cosmic timescale, our projects are so hilariously short-sighted. Mm-hmm. But then again, the, that's just how we're built, right? I mean, it's it's very difficult for us to seriously focus on a project that we think will take place over say a 100,000 years or even a million years.
0: Yeah, totally. We're just we we are short-sighted as a species. That's what we've evolved to be.
1: Now, on the subject of long time scales and and the co- cosmic scale of events, I asked Dr. Hoffman about whether a spacefaring species should really worry about things like gamma-ray bursts or X-ray bursts, which I think is kind of a weird question because uh on one hand, it's something that would pose a very serious threat, but these things are also incredibly rare in the universe and they're mm-hmm. incredibly rare in the galaxy. So it's hard to – factor into one's idea about something like space exploration how much you should worry about something that is almost never going to happen anywhere near you yeah but bit, if it did it would be catastrophic
0: well yeah it's coming I mean, it kind of reminds one of, of of course the the seafaring explorers of old and to say well if you go out in that boat you you might very well drown you, you might uh, run into a hurricane etc yeah uh, and the of course, chances,
1: hurricanes are pretty common. Yeah, those right? are pretty
0: common. Like if it it was, you would have to say, oh yeah, well, I, I we very, we may very well drown. We may very well die die on some distant island. Uh, but then the chances here are, are are less. But it's ultimately the same scenario. Like it's – it of course it's safer to not go out and explore. It's certainly in the short term. But are, are we the type of species that is going to do that?
1: Of course. Then again, if there were a nearby gamma ray burst, as unlikely as that is, that would be bad, even if we were on Earth.
0: Yeah, yeah. So these, in particular, like so, these gamma ray bursts uh, are emitted by powerful supernova that are dubbed hypernova, and you can think of these as it's just like the energy shrapnel from a Titanic exploding star. And uh, you know, e- even though they are rare, the radiation killing zone for an exploding hyperstar has been estimated to be about six thousand light years across compared to a normal star's 30 light year kill zone. And even smaller gamma ray doses can have a serious neurological impact on an individual.
1: Oh, yeah, you don't want gamma rays no matter what. (laughs) Yeah, there was
0: a a Cold Spring Harbor laboratory study on mice that found that gamma radiation targeted a a particular type of stem cell in the hippocampus, uh, an area of the the brain believed to be important for learning and mood control. Mm -hmm. And normal doses of space radiation also pose uh, a serious risk. In a separate experiment, the NASA Space Radiation Laboratory dosed mice with radiation equal to the amount an astronaut might receive on a three Three year voyage to Mars. And scientists discovered significant damage to hippocampus stem cells responsible for repopulating the brain with new cells. So, without proper radiation shielding, lengthy space exploration might be a recipe for the kind of uh, like cognitive and emotional breakdown that uh, Dr. Hoffman alluded to. The idea that you would have your astronauts arrive at their destination uh, with reduced cognitive abilities. And th- this is exactly the time when uh, presumably all the hard work is right. In front of them, they're going to have to uh, land on the planet and be planetary explorers, uh, but have to do so with a reduced uh, with reduced brain power.
1: Yeah, it's a daunting problem. Now, of course, in all of this discussion, we don't want to give the impression of discouraging space exploration or anything like no, that. No, but, no, no. Uh, just because of all these risks. But. In talking about them, it's just that we have to recognize how hard this project is and how dangerous it is and how much uh, investment of research and technology it's going to take to make this something that humans can safely and reasonably do.
0: Yeah. Um we, we did an episode last year. where We talked about proposed ways of genetically altering. Uh, 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 astronauts of the future so that they might be less susceptible to the damages of radiation. Oh yeah. So there there are multiple fronts on which uh, uh, science, current science and future science uh, may be able to to tweak all of this in our favor, but it is still as you said a, it's a dangerous universe. And uh, and we are ultimately a, a very fragile species that has evolved to thrive within a very slim portion of our own uh, atmosphere and within a, a slim portion of our own uh, terrestrial environment. Yeah, even a large portion of the earth will kill you. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah, if you were to teleport up to the top of Mount Everest, you would not be able to breathe. Or if you were to suddenly appear at the the, the bottom of the ocean and find yourself uh, surrounded by, what, 3,000 atmospheres worth of pressure.
1: Yeah, or the North or South Pole. Yes. Or in the middle of a desert. Right. There's just a lot of bad places to be. But I don't mean to trash the Earth, of course. I mean, this takes us back to the idea of the overview effect that we mentioned a little bit with yeah. Dr. Hoffman, that having a cosmic perspective on the Earth, realizing the ultimate – Kind of emptiness and violence and hostility of the universe at large, and the the incredible uniqueness and privilege of this one little rock floating in space, it really should give us a perspective of thankfulness and transcendence, uh, something that makes the the petty human squabbles kind of fade away into non-importance.
0: indeed. All right, so there you have it. I uh, hope everyone enjoyed our chat with Dr. Hoffman. We certainly enjoyed chatting with him.
1: Absolutely. It was a pleasure. And he, I don't know. He gave me a lot of stuff to think about.
0: Yeah. This is the, the first time we've had an actual space traveler on the show. Uh, and it did I did, it did not disappoint. Maybe it won't be the last time. Yeah. Who knows? Now, if there's anything in our discussion with Dr. Hoffman that really leapt out at you and you would like to hear a whole episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind On, let us know about that because uh, cause he covered a lot of ground in the interview.
1: Totally. Don't be shy to get in touch with us and let us know what you would like us to pick up on from that conversation in the future.
0: Right. And you can do that at our various social media accounts. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, oh, and check out stuff to That's the mothership. That's where you'll find links out to our social media accounts. That is where you'll find links out to our social media accounts, uh, as well as all the podcast episodes, some blog posts, etc. And hey, check out One Strange Rock. It's a really beautiful show. It definitely like HD home viewing experience.
1: Big thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. And if you want to get in touch with us directly by email, you can do so, as always, at at blowthemindathowstuffworks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of
1: other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
2: I'm